This is an AMI podcast. Welcome to Voices of the Walrus on AMI-audio, where professional readers give voice to articles from Canada's best general interest magazine. I'm your host, Roger Ashby. Coming up, over a century and a half, the Mounties have become part of Canada's national identity. They've also been embroiled in scandal after scandal. Lori Wilson reads The RCMP Revisited by Jane Gerster. Jane Gerster is an independent reporter whose history of the RCMP, for the good of the force, will be published by McClelland and Stewart in 2022. I'm Lori Wilson. This is an article titled The RCMP Revisited by Jane Gerster. Late last year, Charlene Bagley shared an emotional video. In it, she calls her dad a hero and vows that she will find out exactly what happened to him. Her father, Tom Bagley, was one of the 22 people gunned down in Portapique, Nova Scotia in April 2020. In the nine-minute recording, Bagley speaks about the toll taken by eight months without her father and what it feels like to still have no concrete sense of how he died. Quote, I continue to wake up daily with visions of what I think happened based on the very little information that we've received, trying to piece together the story that seems so unbelievable, she says. The story we've been told from the very beginning has changed many times. There are so many holes that one would wonder, is there something they're trying to hide? Late at night on April 18th, a gunman attacked his partner in their home in the beach community of Porta Peak, about a 90-minute drive north of Halifax. He burned down the house, killed his neighbors, and continued on a 13-hour killing spree while dressed in an RCMP uniform and driving a mock RCMP cruiser. The RCMP, which is in charge of policing in the area, relied on social media to alert the public, issuing a single tweet advising of a weapons complaint in Porta Peak at 11.30 p.m., Its next tweet went out shortly after 8 a.m., the following morning, this time describing the event as, quote, an active shooter situation. Rather than call in the nearby Truro police, the RCMP summoned its own reinforcements from Halifax and New Brunswick, both farther away. Meanwhile, the gunman's rampage continued for several more hours, before he encountered, in a bit of policing serendipity, an RCMP tactical team at a gas station in Enfield. Quote, there is an enormous amount of questions and uncertainty about what the RCMP did, says Sandra McCullough, a lawyer representing the families of the victims in a proposed class action against the RCMP and the Attorneys General of Nova Scotia and Canada. The RCMP didn't send out enough officers given the severity of the crime, their lawsuit alleges, and the force should have known it. Quote, the RCMP failed to accept and act on credible information reads the statement of claim, which also condemns the force for using Twitter instead of the new provincial alert system, releasing tweets that didn't match the information given in 911 calls, and failing to call in local police, who could have responded more quickly. The proposed class action is led by Andrew O'Brien and Tyler Blair. O'Brien's wife was killed, Blair's father and stepmother were killed, and their house was set on fire. Their criticism of the RCMP isn't restricted to those critical 13 hours of the rampage itself. 
They condemn the force for failing to investigate past allegations that the gunman possessed illegal weapons and that he had been physically abusive to women, including his longtime girlfriend. Their lawsuit alleges the Nova Scotia Attorney General failed to ensure that there were enough RCMP officers in some counties and that those officers had sufficient resources to do their jobs. They contend, too, that the RCMP's communication since the attack has been, quote, high-handed, self-serving, and disrespectful and is deserving of punishment. Specifically, they say families were misled about the circumstances of their loved ones' deaths and allege that, in one case, a car was returned with gun casings and body parts still inside. Questions of accountability, timeliness, sensitivity to victims, and the RCMP's ability to work well with other police forces have precedent. They all came up before port peak perhaps most famously in the case of Robert Picton, the largest investigation into a Canadian serial killer, which spanned years and involved hundreds of investigators. Picton was arrested by Coquitlam RCMP in B.C. in 1997 and charged with attempted murder following a violent attack on a sex worker. At the time, both the RCMP and the Vancouver Police Department were well aware that women from the downtown east side were going missing and being killed at alarming rates, and that many of the victimized women were Indigenous sex workers. The RCMP corporal handling the attempted murder case clearly believed there was a connection between Picton and the missing women. So even after the Crown stayed the charges in 1998, he made surveillance requests premised on the idea that Picton was picking up women in Vancouver and taking them home to kill them. Picton, quote, was the logical suspect, an inquiry would later determine. But it took five years to charge him with the murders. In 2010, Vancouver's deputy police chief, Doug Lepard, released a scathing 400-page report reviewing the force's joint investigation with the RCMP. He wrote that much of the information Vancouver police had collected about Picton, quote, sufficient to justify a sustained investigation, was passed on to the RCMP for action that never followed. Quote, RCMP management appears to have not understood the significance of the evidence they had, Lepard found. When two Mounties did interview Picton in January 2000, Lepard wrote, Picton denied killing women, but was cagey when it came to whether DNA from the missing women might be found on his property. Neither Mountie asked any follow-up questions. An offer from Picton to search his farm was another dropped lead. Overall, the investigation was, quote, a disaster, says Rob Gordon, a criminologist at Simon Fraser University. Quote, the RCMP saw themselves as being cock of the roost, and these municipal forces were lesser mortals, Gordon says. That's a well-recognized problem that keeps surfacing and then disappearing again. In the years that followed Confederation, John A. MacDonald had a problem. Settling the Northwest Territories had become a national imperative. If Canada did not match the westward expansion of the United States, it risked being overwhelmed. Reports from the area weren't promising. In his 1872 report, the Adjutant General of the Canadian Militia painted a picture of, quote, white men living by sufferance, as it were, entirely at the mercy of Indians. How were new settlers supposed to farm? How were their cattle to roam freely? 
Canada's solution was to create the Northwest Mounted Police in 1873. Initially intended to be a temporary force, its purpose was to state Canada's claim to the territories. To that end, mounted policemen stood sentry at treaty signings, and they enforced a pass system that kept First Nations confined to reserves despite the Mountie's own misgivings about its legality. So singular was this focus that, for a time, the Canadian government moved management of the force under the Department of Indian Affairs. Macdonald's design was deliberate. He called the Northwest Mounted Police a force instead of a corps to avoid any chance that the U.S. might think Canada was trying to sneak west an army. He dressed them in red to invoke the British Army and Queen Victoria, whose friendly relations with Indigenous peoples Canada wished to call upon. And, inspired by the constabulary the British used to rule over Ireland, he made them a paramilitary so they could serve as a de facto government on behalf of politicians back in Ottawa. Paramilitaries are generally defined as forces that operate like unofficial armies, trained and structured as if they are going to war. In the nearly 150 years since they were founded, the Mounties, officially renamed the Royal Canadian Mounted Police in 1920, have gone from a couple hundred men putting out prairie fires, managing diseases, and subjugating Indigenous peoples to a full-fledged national police force. Today, the RCMP employs around 30,000 people, roughly 20,000 police officers, plus additional support staff who cover everything from human resources to research and analysis to IT. The force operates in many jurisdictions across the country and is run by a commissioner who is the highest-ranking member of the RCMP. The commissioner is appointed by and reports to the federal government. Current commissioner Brenda Lucky's appointment was announced by Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, and she reports to the Minister of Public Safety and Emergency Preparedness, most recently Bill Blair. Blair declined to discuss this story. A spokesperson for Lucky wrote that she was, quote, unavailable for interviews. Locally, Mounties investigate run-of-the-mill crimes in cities and towns too small or too poor or too cheap to pay for their own police forces. Provincially, they police rural communities and patrol highways in most jurisdictions, everywhere outside of Ontario, Quebec, and pockets of Newfoundland and Labrador. Federally, they investigate terrorism and other threats to national security, and they serve as bodyguards for politicians and designated VIPs. They also police reserves through tripartite agreements with specific First Nations, the appropriate provincial or territorial government, and the federal government. The RCMP as an institution was not built to do most of these things, never mind all of them at once. It was designed as a paramilitary the Canadian government could wield as part of its nation-building project, not a regular duty police force with the deep community relationships and flexible adept officers required to not just investigate crime, but prevent it. So much has changed, yet the RCMP has clung to its founding conception across three centuries and the federal politicians who are ultimately responsible for the Mounties have let them. And why shouldn't they? The Mounties, still, feature indelibly as part of Canadians' iconography. 
In 2013, 87% of Canadians surveyed told Statistics Canada that they believe the RCMP is important to their national identity, ranking only three things higher. The Charter of Rights and Freedoms, the flag, and the anthem. Hockey was down in fifth place. A sport affectionately seen as a Canadian way of life figures less in the country's identity than the national force. For almost as long as there have been Mounties, there has been a brand to go along with the actual officers, romanticizing their morality. A brand invoked not just by the RCMP itself, but by cultural creators of all kinds. In 20th century novels, the Mounties' early days are stripped of context and transformed into adventurous tales of white men testing their hardiness against the prairies, their mere presence encouraging even the foolhardiest of criminals to reconsider their actions. The Mounties have been featured heroically in TV shows, Due South, and amusingly in cartoons, The Dudley Do-Right Show and had appeared, as per the RCMP's own webpage dedicated to its depictions titled, quote, Our Image, in, quote, more than 250 English-language movies by the 1950s alone. And no other organization in this country can you pull on your dress uniform and instantly become an emblem of what it means to be Canadian. The standard narrative has been confounded more recently by a much darker version of the RCMP, which has spent the last two decades lurching from crisis to crisis. The difficulties are complex and fall into several categories. One recurring problem, which dates back decades, is the quality of the RCMP's investigations, many of which have been bungled with disastrous results. In 2013, the force manufactured a terrorism case against a couple in B.C. Famously, the force's shoddy investigative work in another terrorism case resulted in unverified information being shared with the U.S., leading to Canadian citizen Mahar Arar spending a year being tortured abroad. The RCMP's continual struggle to understand racialized communities contributed to its failure to both prevent the 1985 Air India bombing, the worst terrorist attack in Canadian history, and properly investigate it. The second problem is a workplace culture that is inculcated and preserved within the RCMP's 19th century paramilitary structure. The resulting well-documented internal dysfunction bleeds into the public realm through a firehose of class action suits seeking recompense for bullying, harassment, sexual abuse, sexual harassment, racism aimed at civilians, racism aimed at colleagues, and other issues that the RCMP has failed to adequately address. It has also led to decades of study and thousands of pages of reform proposals issued by a wide range of experts, almost none of which have led to substantive change. The RCMP's third major problem stems from its volume of work and the complicated scope of its mandate. From First Nations to municipalities to provinces and territories to national security, the Mounties' attention and resources are divided. This makes it difficult for the forces to prioritize, which in turn prevents it from focusing on those areas where a national police force is truly required, like investigating terrorism. 
Accountability mechanisms meant to provide oversight of the RCMP exist, but they have no teeth. None has the legal ability to force the Mounties to comply with its recommendations. The federal government does have the power to force change, but to date, politicians have largely opted for less substantive reform. And court victories that would seem to serve as a check on the force are often hollow. In July, for instance, the B.C. Supreme Court found in favour of a press coalition objecting to RCMP restrictions on reporters covering old-growth logging protests in Ferry Creek. But the decision only called on the RCMP to reevaluate its actions, not to change them. Within a month, another journalist was detained. There is good, undoubtedly, being done within and by the RCMP. History is dotted with Mounties who have sought to de-escalate conflict, to do what is best for the community over what is best for Ottawa, to investigate on their own personal time in order to solve sensitive cases with ticking clocks. Quote, I suppose it's always the case with policing, as it certainly is with intelligence, that you hear about the failures. You don't hear about the successes as much, says Reg Whitaker, a professor emeritus in political science at York University, whose research has focused on political policing in Canada. Quote, but clearly the problems that have led to the demands, the increasing volume of demands for structural change and greater accountability and so on, those clearly should prevail at some point. All bureaucracies are complicated and built to self-perpetuate. Reform is often slow, and troubles are difficult to pin down to one or two simple causes. But with the Mounties, the stakes are higher and the problems more acute. Policing is, without hyperbole, a life-or-death matter. And paramilitaries are some of the most reluctant to change of all bureaucracies due to an inherently secretive, soldierly mentality that prioritizes government aims over individual rights and views offenders as enemies. The very structure of a paramilitary institution, to borrow from two American policing experts, quote, subverts democratic policing. The fundamental challenge, says the historians, criminologists, and journalists who study the RCMP, has long been getting Canadians to see past the red surge image, the powerful mystique that has helped cement the RCMP's position as a national symbol is also what renders it particularly stubbornly difficult to reform. As journalist Peter C. Newman wrote in McLean's in 1972, quote, Confusion between what is true and what bureaucrats would like to be true is the occupational hazard of any institution which, like the RCMP, expends a great deal of its energy protecting an image. Undue emphasis on the image protects the force's officials not just from the real world, but from their own consciences. The RCMP is responsible for handling just 22% of requests for police help, including 911 calls nationwide. But Canadians who've never encountered a Mountie in real life still have an idea of what the Mounties are, and, crucially, that's often a very different impression than the one held by people who are directly policed by the force. In Canada, the Mounties are, quote, the sacred and the profane, says University of Ottawa criminologist Michael Kempa. If you mess them up, you offend people's sacred sensibilities. If you get it right, you don't really impact very many people's profane experience of policing in Canada.
By the early 20th century, First Nations had been corralled into reserves, and the Mounties were looking for more work. They found it by pitching themselves as a proper national police force. The force's commissioner sold the federal government on the idea of a coordinated paramilitary with, quote, freedom from local influence. The force's longevity seemed all but assured by 1928, when Saskatchewan negotiated a contract with the RCMP, replacing its provincial police force with a detachment of Mounties. It was cheaper for the province to outsource its law enforcement, and it still is. The federal government subsidizes the Mounties by 30 percent. Provinces and territories pay the remainder. The Great Depression spurred Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, Prince Edward Island, Manitoba, and Alberta to follow suit. In 1950, British Columbia and Newfoundland and Labrador made the change too, leaving Ontario and Quebec as outliers. Within provinces that employed the RCMP, the force was further subcontracted to cities and small communities that wanted its services. Over a period of about 25 years, the RCMP cemented coast-to-coast multi-level power. It's power that the federal government hasn't shied away from using, right from the earliest days of this contracting arrangement. In 1935, hundreds of unemployed workers began a protest march, starting in relief camps in B.C. and heading to Ottawa. Over the explicit objections of the Saskatchewan government, the federal government ordered the RCMP to stop the protest, dubbed the On to Ottawa Trek, in Regina. The result was a deadly police riot. To a certain extent, every police force operates as a paramilitary. Indeed, the volume of civilian police forces adopting military tactics, gear, and protocol has, of late, raised alarm bells across North America because militarization changes how police act by changing the terms of their job. But even among an increasing cohort, the Mounties are unique. Their paramilitarism is built into their operational core, such that they function with an army-like attention to rank that might make sense during a terrorist attack, but not when policing delicate personal scenarios, not all of which can or should be resolved with arrests. Paramilitaries are also inherently political, fighting against governments or for them. As such, the RCMP has a well-documented history of struggling to differentiate between legitimate threats to national security and lawful political dissent. The RCMP's counter-subversion unit catastrophized its way through the Cold War, terrorizing suspected communists and destroying their livelihoods on the thinnest of evidence. In 1971, a senior Mountie, worried about the difficulties of spying on lawful political parties, posed as an FLQ cell member and advised the militant separatists against giving up their arms and joining the Parti Québécois to fight for separatism through nonviolent means. In 1978, after the RCMP's illegal activities blew up, literally, then figuratively, the Quebec Commission, tasked with investigating, was forced to fight to the Supreme Court to do its job. The country's top court issued a decision that not only hobbled the Provincial Commission's work, but carried ramifications that continue today. The federal government's right to manage the force, quote, is unquestioned, the court ruled, quote, no provincial authority may intrude.
The RCMP maintains that its contract policing agreements with provinces and municipalities are beneficial because they, quote, allow for the seamless sharing of intelligence and high-level cooperation between all levels of policing. This is not borne out by history. The largest mass killing in Canada took place on June 23, 1985, when Canadian Sikh militants planted a bomb on Air India Flight 182. Everyone on board was killed, 307 passengers and 22 crew. In 2010, former Supreme Court Justice John Major released his final report of the public inquiry into the bombing. In unpacking the, quote, cascading series of errors that led to the attack, Major highlighted the myriad ways RCMP operations had been neither seamless nor collaborative. Major documented how, both before the bombing, when there were multiple specific indicators that a homegrown attack was imminent, and after it, the RCMP resisted, quote, inclusive decision-making, and provided information internally and externally that, quote, was often insufficient. During the nearly 20-year investigation, other police forces, frustrated with being poorly spoon-fed intelligence by the RCMP, asked Ottawa if they could skip the middleman and go directly to the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, which was tasked with collecting intelligence. The Mounties wear many hats, probably too many hats, Major suggested in his report. Among the world's democratic police forces, the RCMP is the only one that operates across so many jurisdictions. He recommended that Canada consider removing the RCMP from its contract policing role, leaving local policing to local governments and provincial policing to provincial governments, so it could do a better job safeguarding national security. Those who study policing reform, and in particular Mountie history, have frequently made similar suggestions that the RCMP narrow the scope of its work. To drive the point home, Christian Leprecht, a Royal Military College and Queen's University professor, memorably described the RCMP to me as the McDonald's of police agencies. Whether you're in Nova Scotia, Manitoba, or British Columbia, the Egg McMuffin is still an Egg McMuffin. The problem? Not everyone wants McDonald's, and those franchises that want to tailor their menus to the communities they serve need corporate's approval, and corporate has an image to think of, a budget to manage, and a head-spinning number of balls in the air. Quote, I don't think the Mounties are currently particularly well-structured to deliver on the needs, values, and expectations of local communities precisely because they are a very hierarchical, top-down organization, Leprecht says. After all, by definition, community policing is decentralized, the opposite of a paramilitary structure, to allow for local communities to dictate their own priorities, such as ensuring the forces' demographics match the communities, or deciding which neighborhoods may require a greater police presence, beyond traditional crime fighting. In 2009, a year before Major's report encouraged the federal government to reevaluate contract policing, Cash Heed, who had, before entering politics, spent three decades as a Vancouver police officer, was appointed BC Solicitor General. And Heed wanted the RCMP, which had been operating there for almost 60 years, out of the province. The force emanates this, quote, superiority, Heed says. 
In his experience, he found them as rigid and uncompromising as the expert reports indicate. While Heed wasn't able to follow through on removing the RCMP from BC, the force didn't entirely quell its critics. When fresh 20-year provincial contracts were signed coast to coast, provinces walked away with new powers when it came to things like policing standards and staffing levels. Notably, the contracts include an, quote, escape clause that allows any province, territory, or municipality to give two years' notice if they want to create their own alternative force. A clause that Surrey activated in 2018 and that Alberta is now deciding whether to invoke. The paramilitarism underlying some of the most headline-grabbing RCMP scandals shapes every aspect of the force, starting with recruitment. To join the RCMP, a person must be at least 18 years old, be a fully licensed driver, and have the equivalent of a high school diploma. There are medical assessments and physical standards to pass, and some questions about willingness to take on the job. Will you agree to spend half a year training in Regina? To be relocated anywhere in Canada? Will you be okay holding a gun? Using physical force? Future Mounties also need to pass a battery of tests to prove their aptitude. The first looks at personality evaluating independence, industriousness, and methodicalness, as well as extroversion, agreeableness, and openness to experiences. The second is an assessment of seven skills the force considers, quote, essential in executing a regular officer's duties, memory, composition, logic, judgment, comprehension, computation, and observation. An average of 10,000 people try to prove their fitness every year, according to the force, although its struggle to maintain its ranks seems to indicate most don't pass. A 2020 in-house assessment of RCMP recruitment deemed it inadequate for ensuring, quote, the achievement of its goals and objectives. Changes to increase recruitment didn't seem to have been rooted in any particular evidence, and many weren't monitored to ensure they were working. Attrition rates rose 11% during the 2010s, though staffing needs grew by 8% during roughly the same period. The force's attempts at diversification have stalled, with some Indigenous officers citing racism within the ranks as their rationale for giving up the Red Surge. Earlier this year, the RCMP issued a request for proposals to revamp its entrance exams, acknowledging that the existing system, quote, potentially favors one group over another and, quote, demonstrates inherent cultural biases. Once an applicant is accepted, it's off to the RCMP's training academy at Depot Division. Unlike the recruits who go on to make up municipal police forces, RCMP cadets are all sent away for their training, living and learning in an environment that's detached from the communities they will eventually serve. This, observers say, fosters a very single-minded and homogeneous approach to policing and creates, within cadets, a deeper tie to the RCMP as an institution than to the people they police. Mounties are forged at depot in a paramilitary environment the force says is necessary to ensure they leave with, quote, a high level of self-discipline. Lepracht, the Royal Military College professor, testifying to a House of Commons Public Safety Committee in 2020, noted that depot, quote, socializes a certain type of command and control mindset. 
do what your superiors tell you to do because they told you to do it, even if it's wrong. That mindset was on display in a 20-minute video published by a news website in February 2020 and shared on various RCMP social media accounts, highlighting, quote, what sets the RCMP apart. In it, a superior tells a cadet, quote, there's no room for meek and mild in this job. You see Mountie recruits learn to march like a military band as trainers bark at them for scuffed belts, crooked pocket flaps, and feet not quite in alignment in the drill hall. Quote, a cow sacrificed their life for your belt, a drill instructor tells a trainee. Look what you've done to it. Quote, do you need to see a chiropractor or something, barks another. Put your feet forward. Later, another instructor criticizes the height of a recruit's tie clip and asks him, quote, Why are those things important in our uniform? Public perception of us, the recruit responds. What happens if we have poor public perception, she presses. Lack of faith, he tells her. When critics raised concern over the techniques in the video, the RCMP demurred, saying it was a snapshot that omitted the less camera-friendly classroom, discussions about mental health and community relationships. But that defense reflects a fundamental misunderstanding of paramilitarism. Not only are paramilitaries inherently political, but over decades of studies, researchers have found that 